Many of you, no doubt, probably everybody, could point to a time in your life, uh, or more specifically, even an individual in your life that you've met, that after that encounter, God used that to change your life. Um, I had that in one of those instances, happened several times in my life, but one of those happened just a little over four years ago when at a pastor's conference, I was introduced to Wes Bentley from Far Reaching Ministries. And over the last little over four years, Wes has not only uh, challenged me in a lot of areas because of the way he lives his life and the ministry that he does, but also become, by becoming a, a close personal friend of mine. And uh, the ministry and, and Wes and his team have really challenged me and changed my life the way I look at, at missions and approach God's work around the world. Uh, many of you ladies uh, probably remember Vicki Bentley. She's actually taught at a couple of, of our women's retreats, and Vicki is, is Wes's wife. Well, we are blessed this morning to have Wes again with us here. He's, been, he's come a couple of times before in the past, but uh, here this morning to share with us again what's going on with far-reaching ministries uh, around the world. So would you please welcome my good friend, Wes Bentley. <laughs> Well, folks, uh, I just got in from overseas on Monday and uh, wanted to share with you, uh, we're going to show you a, a couple videos real quickly. We're going to have an outreach coming this next summer called Love Covers, and we'll explain that in a minute here, but I want to give you a little bit of a visual so you'll be able to understand it. Uh, this is one of our schools that we are building in uh, uh, northern Uganda called uh, Christ Crucible, uh, and this school is going to be for children uh, from uh, grade one all the way through high school. Uh, it will be a place where they go and they get a Christian education. We'll get a little bit deeper into that, but this is the place that that you'll be going to serve. There's two different places that you'll serve at. And uh, this, this, that's a part of the farm out there at Christ Crucible, kind of the housing we're building there. So we have some comfortable places for people to stay. It's not quite as bushy as most people think of where we are in the world. And then let's go to the next one, guys. This is our uh, chaplain's base in uh, Southern Sudan. Uh, we're actually in renovation right now. And uh, it's quite extensive. Uh, we're actually building a church that can hold 1,500 people right now. And can we go to the next photo? Uh, and you know, where you're seeing here, this is the end of the compound. You can see how we're extending it. So it's quite a large facility. And uh, these bricks are, uh, we have a super hardening process by how we harden these bricks. Uh, they're so hard that you cannot shoot a 50 caliber uh, round through them. And for those of you who are familiar with bullets, you know how hard that is for a brick to be. Uh, anybody that's been in the military know that's uh, pretty incredibly safe there. So one of the things that we want to share with you this morning, guys, where we are going, you're going to be extremely safe. Now, in sharing with you, we're going to share a lot of hard facts this morning. And I think for a lot of people, what we're trying to do is not make you to be afraid. Uh, we have, we're have building a third castle on top of a mountain, uh, and it will truly be a European castle. We'll have walls that are 30 feet high. We're going to have 16 towers that are over 70 feet high. We're actually going to even have a moat around it with crocodiles in it. And uh, the reason we're doing that is because Islamic people attack uh, Christian schools uh, around the world, and they attacked one in Kenya uh, just a couple years ago and killed about 150 students. So we'll have a big moat with a half a dozen crocodiles in there or a dozen crocodiles in there. In English, we'll put danger crocodiles and Arabic will put a uh, picnic area, you know. And uh, so, uh, so it'll be there for them. Uh, and, sharing, and sharing with you guys, I want to be, I want to share with you guys that uh, this last year was truly uh, probably one of the most difficult years of my life. And uh, guys, I'm going to begin uh, by backing up and kind of sharing with you about when I came to faith in Christ. Now, I, I joined the Marine Corps in 1974. I was in the 10th grade at the time. I lied about my age and joined the military. Uh, I was not searching for Christ. I wasn't even interested in becoming a believer. But it would be in the Marine Corps that I would actually find Jesus Christ uh, through a group called the Navigators. While I was there, uh, the first six months that I became a believer, I did not share my faith with anyone. Uh, one is I didn't know what I was believing in. I didn't know if it was true or not. I didn't know if I was going to stick to it. And I didn't want to say something and then feel like I had to recant it later on. And for six months, I just began to read the Word of God. And I was truly in the Word of God three, seven, nine hours a day for almost six straight months. And uh, I think I probably gave my life to Christ about 40 times over that time because I would read things in the Scripture and it would say, if your righteousness is not that of a Pharisee, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And I would think, well, there's no way I'm as righteous as a Pharisee. And so I try to repent and give my life back to Christ again. I didn't really truly understand the scripture. And um, uh, the first book that I read after uh, I started the Bible, the first Christian book 
was called Tortured for Christ, written by a famous Romanian pastor by the name of uh, Richard Wombrandt. Uh, Richard Wombrandt spent 14 years in Romanian jails uh, and prisons for his faith. Uh, he was actually born a Jewish man, converted to Christianity, and suffered tremendously for his faith. And I remember that when I read his book, it actually transformed my walk with the Lord and understanding of what it meant to be a true believer in the world. And I remember that when I was getting out of the Marine Corps, I found out that Richard Wombrat was going to be speaking in a church in Southern California. Very large church, very good church, a great pastor, not a Calvary Chapel, but it was a really good church. And I wanted to go here and hear that man share the word. So I went to the church and we're in an auditorium and there's literally thousands of people in this auditorium. And I remember that when Richard Wombrandt walked up on the stage, he walked up and he was wearing his socks. He wasn't wearing shoes. And the reason he did that is because when he was in prison, he was so persecuted for his faith that we were always trying to get him to deny, not deny his faith. So they would lay him across the table, they would take his shoes and his socks off, and they would tell him to deny Christ. When he would not do it, they would take a two by four and they would beat the bottom of his feet till they broke the bones in it. And his bones had been broken so many times on his feet, it's very painful for him to wear his shoes. When he walked up on the stage, he told some of the most incredible stories of persecution that I have ever heard in my life. It actually radically transformed the way that I saw what Christianity truly was. But guys, something happened that day that shocked me more than anything else that I could have been surprised with. I remember that as the service was coming to an end, I thought to myself, I'm gonna wait. I wanna be the last person out of here because I want time to speak with Reverend Wombrat. I wanna be able to talk to him. I need to understand his type of Christianity a little bit better because I'm not hearing this taught in the churches the way that he taught it. And uh, something happened that day that surprised me. Literally within 10 minutes, the entire auditorium was empty. I saw person after person file pass, great sermon pastor, shake his hand. I did not see one single person actually even give him a gift, and they all walked out of the auditorium. And these people had a great pastor that was great, was rightly dividing the word of God. And so I went up to Richard Wombrandt, and I said, Pastor Wombrandt, I said, I don't know how I can help uh, but I would at least like to write a check. I said, who do I write the check to? And his wife, Sabina, said, Wes, write the check to Jesus. And I remember I wrote it for exactly $180. I think that's probably because that's all the money that I had at the time. And uh, I gave it to Sabina. And Sabina said to me, she said, you know, my husband spent 14 years in communist prisons. She said, but I spent seven years in prison myself. She goes, it was a very dark time in Romania's history. She goes, if you were considered a threat to the state, uh, there was no order. There was no trial. They would just write an order of execution, and they would take you out at midnight, and they would shoot you. She goes, the seven years that I was in prison, they came for us one day. They took us away. I did not know where my son was for seven years. I didn't know if he was alive. I didn't know if he was dead. I didn't know if he was cold, he was hungry, if anyone was taking care of him. I did not know anything about my son for seven straight years of my life. And she said, there was a young girl in our cell, and they had determined that she was a threat to the state, and they had ordered that she should be executed that night. She goes, in our cell, it was such like a great gloom because she was a young, beautiful Christian girl. She was probably about 17 or 18 years of age at that time. And she said, all of a sudden, this young girl spoke up and she said, me and my fiance had hoped to glorify Jesus Christ in this life by being missionaries. But that is not how I will glorify him. Tonight, I will glorify him with my death. She said that when the guards came for her, it was such a, 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 an incredible sight to see because there's this young, small, petite little girl and there's these huge, huge bulls of men, and they're leading this girl off that anybody could tell that she's absolutely no threat to anyone. But as they were walking her off to the firing squad, they could hear this young girl talking to these guards, and she said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in him shall never die. And that young girl, folks, was executed over 60 years ago, but her testimony lives on to this day. And we're living in a time that many of us do not really understand what true Christianity is all about. We don't fully get the concept of what it means to have a life that is set aside for the gospel. You know, guys, this last year has been an incredibly hard year for us. The last couple have been. War is broken out in the Sudan. For those of you who are not familiar with our ministry, we are the official training arm for a foreign army. We actually train all chaplains and pastors for the South Sudanese Army and have now been doing it for 20 years. We have a very intense Bible school. We get our guys up at five o'clock in the morning and we run them nine miles. We take them straight up a mountain and straight down a mountain. And then we have eight hours of class time and two and a half hours of study time daily. And uh, 
From 2000 to 2013, I had 13 of my staff that were killed in the war. In the last two years, 24 of my staff have been killed in the war. And it's been a very brutal, we've already lost eight men this year. Since the last time I was here a year and a half ago, 12 more of my staff have lost their life in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we're gonna share with you today, guys, is we're gonna take you kind of on a journey to make you understand who you're going to minister to, what the background is so that you'll be able to understand. And again, I'm trying to relate to you that in the areas that you're at, in Missendi, the first place we've saw, showed you, there's never been war there, folks. It's a safe area. But we have a farm in northern Uganda. We call it Canaan Farm. There's 500 acres there. We are currently farming 100. We're in the processes of putting in drip irrigation and bringing in all the best equipment to be able to farm at least 300 acres of land. We're actually building a storage facility right now that can hold 6,100 pounds of bags of corn maize. Uh, in the Sudan, starvation will come to the Sudan this year. The conservative estimate is 1.5 million people will die of starvation in our country this year. Uh, they say across five African nations, there's a possibility of as many as 20 million people of dying of starvation this year. In our country, folks, growing crops is not a problem. We have the ability. The problem is there are so many rebel groups and there's so many fighting out there that we can't, people can't go out into the field to grow their crops for the fear of being killed or to being abducted. And we've had a great migration out of the country, people fleeing the land. Uh, our village alone, which is a border town, we've lost over 40% of our population that have fled the country. And so this is what's going on all across the Sudan. But in northern Uganda, there was a war raged for many years by a group called the LRA. It was Lord's Resistance Army. It was by the man called Joseph Kony. And Jonas Kony is, uh, I have had many people that have met him, talked to him, and interacted with him. I am sure that he is demonically uh, possessed. Uh, he's an extremely evil man. But one of the things he did is he waged a war of terror against people in northern Uganda. And when he would come down, he would bring his soldiers and guerrilla groups, and they would attack villages. They would capture families, and they would capture family, and they would take this young child, maybe a young girl, maybe a young boy, somewhere between 9, 10, 11, 12 years of age, and they would give them a machete, and they would say, cut the head off your mother. And if the child refused to cut the head off the mother, they would say to them, if you do not cut the head off your mother, we will cut the head off your father, your mother, your brothers and sisters, and then we will kill you. So you have a choice right now. Either your, your, your mother dies or we will execute your entire family. And actually, there were many testimonies of mothers that would beg their children to actually cut their heads off in the hope of saving the rest of the family. And guys, I have shared many times with and heard the testimonies of young children that have had to go through this experience. The way that they mourn, there's no English version that I can explain to you that you can understand what I would relate to you. There's no words for it. There is a depth of mourning that we do not hear here in America, where something has been so traumatic in your life, an event that is so horrifying that you just don't have the ability to, to share it. There is a howling that comes from the soul, a weeping that is so deep. And many of these children have suffered tremendously in this area. And one of the things that we did is we, uh, we have a the farm called Canaan Farm. In Canaan Farm, we bring families that were victims of the LRA. Again, it's not in a war zone, it's a very safe area. You have the Nile River that divides where the war area was, and then you got 75 miles of, uh, before you even get to the farm, so it's an extremely safe area. Well, we brought families there for the purpose of bringing healing into their life. Uh, there are many wives that were forced to kill their husbands. Same thing that was done to them. The type of, of, of insanity that went on in that part of the world. You learn that Satan has of evil where he cannot go lower. He's always got the ability to take it lower and make it worse and make it much more evil for people to understand. And that was one of the things that we began to realize is that people were suffering in this part of the world. And so we begin, we open this farm up, people come there, we have a, a cooperative farm where they all participate and they all receive from uh, what is grown and are able to live there free of charge. And we try to take care of them. On the farm where we are building Christ Crucible, the school will be able to hold between six and 700 children that will be able to live on campus and then another six or 700 in the community will also be able to come and be a part of the school there. And it will be a safe haven, a Christian place, a place that we're gonna raise them to fear and to love the Lord. And this is something that we're going to be doing there. You know, guys, um, 
One of the things that How Love Covers got started, it started many years ago. Uh, I was in a place called Kitgum, Northern Uganda. We were up there, we were doing outreaches, we are doing evangelical things. And I remember that one day my wife, Vicki, came in and she goes, honey, something really bad has happened. I said, what has happened? She goes, I don't know, but you just need to go there. And so I got in my bush vehicle and we headed over there and we pulled up to an area and you could tell something was going on. Uh, you, could ju- you could just see by the way that the people were, there was, there was mourning going on in the area. And we got out of the vehicle and we went in there. And in Uganda, to be able to go to school, you have to be able to purchase a school uniform. Uh, a school uniform cost about $3.75. But because of the war in northern Uganda, what began to happen was everybody had to flee into these refugee camps. They were no longer able to farm. They were no longer able to grow cattle and to raise things to sell them. So families have absolutely no money. The UN comes in and they feed them. They give them corn maize and beans and oil and salt, and that's about it. And that's how people survive. Well, a young girl had gone to her mother, and she wanted to go to school. And she said, Mom, I needed a school uniform. And her mother said to her, honey, we're poor, we don't have any money, we don't have any way to get money, I can't get you a school uniform. But the child continued to uh, beseech her mother and kept talking to her about the need for this school uniform. And her mother just said to her, honey, I don't have it. Well, finally one day she thought, you know what, I know where there are some bamboos. And guys, they use bamboos to build the structures of the houses of their little mud huts they have. And she thought, you know, if I go out there and I cut those bamboos down, I should be able to get just enough money to buy my daughter that school uniform. So the mother risked it. She went out to do that, and she was intercepted by uh, the LRA, and they shot her six times, and they killed her. And when we were there, there was a young girl, probably somewhere, again, like I said, nine or ten years of age, and she's relating this story to me. And she starts to cry, and she says, I think I killed my mom. I think I killed my mom. And I said, honey, you did not kill your mom. Your mother was just trying to be a good mother. Evil men killed your mother. Well, that's how love covers began to start. So what we do in this next coming year will be at least 3,000 children. We bring them in for a week of what we call vacation Bible school. Uh, We do dramas. uh, We do singing. Uh, we do tremendous amount of Bible studies with these children. And at the end of that week, we give them a backpack. In the backpack, there's a school uniform, there's play clothes, there's shoes. For some of them, it's the first pair of shoes they've ever owned in their life. For almost all of them, it's the first pair of new clothing they've ever had in their life. There's everything from you know toothpaste and toothbrushes, uh, pencils, erasers, all the things that kids need. And for us, you know, if you gave that to your kid in America, uh, they would think you're a terrible parent for Christmas for doing something like that. But you, when you give it to them in Africa, they just absolutely start start to cheer. They get up, they dance, they sing. Uh, most of them never received anything new in their life. And it's like the best Christmas that you've ever experienced. The children are so extremely grateful to have you there. And it's really a tremendous joy and a tremendous pleasure to be able to work with those children. And so those are some of the people that you will be coming and that you'll be ministering to in that part of the world. And uh, guys, it really is a privilege to be able to sit there and to minister to these children. I want to share with you guys, like I said, this year has been probably the most difficult year of my life. I don't think that I've ever gone through a time in my life where I uh, felt like there was a harder season of life than the one that we're in right now. It has truly been the most dangerous years of our lives this last couple of years. We used to be able to travel by road freely. Uh, Now we travel nowhere without there being an armed convoy. Uh, Anytime I go out the gate, I'm out with three or four vehicles. I've got at least 20 to 25 soldiers that are heavily armed going with me anytime I leave our village there. We've actually had assassinations in our village where rebels have sent people in there to assassinate top leaders. And they've come in there. Apparently they got silencers because no one heard the gunshot, but we find the person dead in the morning. So we're living in a very dangerous time in the area of the southern Sudan. And sharing that with you, something happened this year, God, that was very difficult for me. Uh, I had actually, in uh, May, just returned from the South Sudan. I'd landed on the ground. I was in my office. I was talking to my secretary, Emily, one morning. And about 10.30 in the morning, my wife, Vicki, called me, and she goes, Honey, Thomas has been shot. And I said, What are you talking about? And she goes, I don't. I said, What happened? She goes, I don't know. She said, Call Michael. The men are on their way. Thomas was a senior staff chaplain that worked at our headquarters there. And uh, he was a commando. He was in special forces. And uh, 
So I called Michael and I said, Michael, what has happened? He goes, I don't know, Wes. He goes, we're still trying to figure it out. He goes, he's still breathing. We're on the way to the hospital. He said, call me back in 10 minutes. Well, my mind immediately goes into action. We own an airplane. It's dark there. You cannot allow, land an airplane in the dark. So I'm calling, trying to get things arranged. I'm trying to get our airplane on the runway. I need a doctor. As soon as the sun comes up, I need the wheels off the ground. I realize that time is running out and I'm doing everything. I'm, I'm just going through my mind as fast as I can, racing, trying to figure out how to fix the situation. I called Michael back in 10 minutes. I said, Michael, tell me about the wound. Where was he shot? Where did the bullet enter? Where did it exit? Did it exit? How big is the hole? How much blood is he losing? I'm trying to figure it all out. And Michael is telling me everything and I think it's just because he didn't want to tell me what happened when all of a sudden he said, sir, he's dead. And when Michael said that to me, guys, I have heard the term before that it hurts so much, it's hard to breathe. But I had never experienced that in my life until that moment. I literally felt like I got kicked in the chest by a great stallion. It took my breath away. I had a problem breathing for a moment there. Out of the 500 men under my command, Thomas was the third closest to me. He was one of my dear, very, very, dear, very dear brothers in Christ. Thomas was a commando. They trained them in special forces. And guys, these guys are highly trained. When they send them into commandos, they send them to Ethiopia for six months. They get them up every morning, and for four hours a day, they run them through the mountains with a backpack full of stones to make them battle-hardened soldiers. Thomas had been in countless enemy encounters and survived them. He was not afraid of war whatsoever. And, I went, and, and when, he, when he said that, I, I, I just became furious. And, and, and I said, Michael, I started to say to Michael, I was, was going to say, Michael, you capture him. And what we found out was is that Thomas was actually sent out to a counseling appointment. There was an issue of dowry in a family. That's where uh, a, a man pays for a bride with his wife. And for some reason, there was an issue in this family of the dowry not being paid. Well, Thomas as a pastor was sent out to resolve that issue. And he was actually getting it resolved. Well, the husband, he was so afraid he was going to lose his wife. He was drunken. He was scared. And he came in with an AK-47 and he shot Thomas twice and he killed him. When that happened, guys, I, and I found out about it, I was just full of rage. And I started to say to Michael, Michael, you hold him. Don't you dare let a single person lay a hand on him till I get there. I am going to kill him myself. I want to see the life leave his eyes. Now, folks, you may think I'm kidding. Oh, Pastor Wes, you're not serious. Oh, folks, I'm dead serious. See, I've always had it within me to take human life. It was never a problem for me. By nature, I am a soldier. I am trained as a soldier. When guy, people ask me what I do in the world, I normally tell them I am a soldier serving Christ in Africa because it's the way that I view myself. I knew from the time that I was six years old I was going to be a soldier. Now, let me explain this to you because I don't want you to think something strange. I have never wanted to take innocent life. I've never wanted to hurt someone for the wrong reasons. But when evil men have wanted to hurt others, I have never had a problem with intervening and shooting someone like that. It was never a problem for me. And I wanted to snatch the life right out of this individual. But the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart and I heard God's voice so very, very clearly. And he said, if you do this, you will destroy the ministry. You'll destroy your witness and you will destroy Thomas's witness. And it was everything within me not to say it. We captured the guy, he's in a military prison. Folks, most likely he will be shot in a firing squad, but he will not die at my hands. And one of the things that we need to realize is the Bible says that when we give our lives to Christ, it says that our knives no longer belong to us. They belong to the Lord. We are lost in a world that is no longer our own. We don't march to the beat of what others hear. We march to the beat of a different drum. We march to the commands of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We lose our life in Christ. We become completely changed by the things of this world. We as God's children, we're never supposed to fit in this world, folks. The Bible says that we are a peculiar people, a holy people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a people that is set aside for God purposes. And we were never, ever supposed to fit into this world. We were supposed to be completely different. I think the hardest part for me is that Thomas has a little boy. He's three years old. And Sarah and Thomas named their little boy forgiven. We actually all call him given. And he's a sweet little child. Matter of fact, Thomas and Sarah says 
There's nobody in the world that given loves more than Wes. And I don't know why that little boy loves me, but he has loved me from the time that he was about two years of age. When he sees me, he just runs towards me. He always puts his arms up in the air. One morning, he got up about four o'clock in the morning and he left his mud hut, walked a half a mile through our village and showed up at my door. Now guys, I get up at 4.45 every morning to get in the word, to pray. And normally I'll make a cup of coffee and be praying and reading the word. And uh, at 5.30 one morning, I just decided to open the door and let some fresh air in and I opened it and there was a little given just standing there. I mean, he didn't even knock on the door. He was just waiting till I got up and came out the door. When I'm teaching at church on Sunday, he will literally walk straight up in front of the, everybody in the church, walk up, put his hands up. I pick him up, he falls asleep in my arms. And uh, Thomas said to him one time, he said, Given, he goes, who's your father? And he goes, Wes. And Thomas goes, no, he's not, I'm your father, you know. But that's just the way that little boy is. He's just a sweet child, you know. I think the hardest thing for me, guys, is that little Given will never know the voice of his father. He'll never remember it. He will never know him as the man that I knew him. He'll know it through testimony, but he will never know him the way that I knew that little boy, that, that way I knew Thomas. See, Thomas, had he known this man was coming, he would have never, ever stood a chance. We were in an ambush a couple years ago. We were coming up a road, and we got ambushed by a large enemy force, and a major firefight broke out on the road. As they were out there, Lino was up there, who's one of our senior chaplains, and Lino's been shot five times in combat, including once in the head. And then we had Thomas and we had another chaplain by the name of Richard. As they were fighting, all of a sudden, Richard's gun jammed and he looked over to Thomas. He goes, Thomas, my gun jammed. And Thomas goes, just lay down. And he goes, but there's many of them. And Thomas goes, but there's many of us. And what was funny about it, guys, is that when he said that, Thomas and Lino realized that Richard was scared. And they laughed themselves silly in the, in the middle of a major firefight because they couldn't believe this guy was afraid when bullets are flying all around them. These were the type of men they wore. They were warriors. And yet he will never know that man, the gentleness he was, the man he was in Christ, the way he ministered, the way he loved people. Thomas loved the women's ministry. He loved working with my wife, Vicki. And he always wanted to go out and be a part of the women's ministry. He never saw it beneath himself. He felt it an honor to be a part of it. He loved working with the teenagers. And see, that's the part that's so very hard for me that he will never know it. You know, in Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 23, the prophet Jeremiah says, I know, O Lord, that a man's life is not his own. It is not for man to direct his footsteps. You know, guys, working in South Sudan, I think one of the hard things is, as a missionary, it's very difficult for me to explain to people what I do. When people ask me what I do on an airplane, I almost try to avoid the question. It's not that I'm ashamed of my faith, but it's very difficult for me to explain to them the area of the world that we live in, what we go through, and what we do. I think that they think we're some kind of crazy people once we get going through it, and if I heard it, I would probably think that too. I would think these guys are a little bit nuts, you know. But we're living in a very dangerous part of the world. And one of the things that I realized is when we, the war started in Southern Sudan, I had gone there to be a pastor, to be a Bible teacher, to be an evangelist. I never planned to get involved in the longest running war in Africa. But what began to happen was the rebels began to come down and attack the villages. And when they would attack the villages, they would come in and rape all of the women. They would burn women and children alive. They would cut the breast off of the women, their lips off of them, their noses off of them, their ears off of them. It was just a very horrible thing. So we began to build sanctuaries for women and children to come in at night. When the sun would begin to set, at first you would just see a small amount of women and children coming in. But by the time the sun went down, they estimated 44,000 women and children were coming in every night looking for sanctuary. Among the soldiers in South Sudan, they are great warriors. They're extremely tenacious in battle, but often they would fight extremely hard until they realized they could not win the battle. And then they would pull back and say, live to fight another day. And see, the Lord told me I had to deal with these men. So I sit the men down one day and I said, listen, guys, it is not your job to save your life. It is your job to save their lives. We are men, they are women and children. If the enemy comes, not one of you guys is to pull off that line until we have evacuated every single woman and child. If you die, then you die. That is the role of a man. We are called to protect those that cannot protect themselves. We are called to care for those that cannot care for themselves. I don't know if you, any of you guys have ever seen a child that's truly terrified before, but the most vivid image in my mind was of a little girl. 
Uh, we actually pulled her off the body of her dead mother. Her mother was killed in a rebel attack. And she's about a little three-year-old little girl and she's holding on to her mother. And we pulled her off and she's laying in my wife Vicky's lap and she's trembling. And it's not just a part of her. I don't know if you've ever seen someone that's so afraid that every part of their body's trembling. It's their legs, their calves, their torso, their chest, uh, their arms, their head. Everything is shaking because of the fear of what they're going through. And the heart that we have for these children is to be able to say to them, honey, you lay your head down tonight and you sleep and you dream the dreams that a child is supposed to dream. Nobody's gonna hurt you tonight. Not on my watch. Tonight, the body of Christ is gonna wrap its arms around you and we're gonna protect those that cannot protect themselves. We're gonna care for those that do not have the ability to care for themselves. See folks, there's no book written for what we are doing right now. I'm in the process of bringing many special forces into the Sudan right now. Now I was trained very highly. I was a competitive shooter for the Marines. I went through amphibious raider school. We're bringing in Navy SEALs, Marine Corps MARSOC, which is Special Operations Command. They're elite special forces, Army Rangers. And we are preparing the men for evil, because evil is coming. We know it's coming. And if we do not prepare, we know that there's going to be terrible consequences for it. And we've got to get ready for it. This is the world that we are living in on a daily basis. It's a very, very difficult part of the world. One of the things that we need to understand as believers is that we, the Bible, the salvation is truly a free gift of God, folks. But what a lot of Christians really don't understand is that the treasures of heaven are earned. And if you never do anything for Christ in this life, why do you expect great reward on the other side of eternity? For showing up to church, why do you expect a mansion in heaven? Why do you expect great treasures in heaven? See, our lives are to be lives that are given to service. We are to be a people that are set aside for God's purposes. I remember that I saw uh, Reverend Wombrand many years ago, and I had a, another Christian brother that worked with him. His name was also Wes. He's actually also a Calvary Chapel pastor. And Wes told me that one time that him and Reverend Wombrandt were going to speak at a church and they got caught in a rainstorm. Fortunately, they had their luggage and they came in and they were getting ready and they had a little room. So the pastor said, look, you're on stage in five minutes. Go in there and change. And he said that when Reverend Wombrandt went in there and took his shirt off, he said there were cuts all over his body. There were burns all over his body. But what struck him the most is on the bottom side of his stomach, there was a very dark mark. On the back of his back was a very dark mark. And he looked at him and he said, Papa, what happened to you? And he said, there was a time that they tried to get me to deny my faith and I refused to do it. So they took a poker and they heated it in the fire and they threatened me that if I didn't do it, they were gonna stick it through me. I refused to deny my faith. So they pushed the poker all the way through my body. That's what he went through for the faith. Guys, one of the things that we wanna share with you today is that We've been given a life of service to Jesus Christ. And one of the most important things that we need to do is we need to pray about what God has called us to do. Obedience is a safety net for believers. A lot of Christians don't understand how essential obedience is in your walk with the Lord. I remember many years ago, before I went to the Southern Sudan, I worked in Russia for five years. And guys, I traveled all across the former Soviet Union going from prison to prison preaching the gospel. And truthfully, it was one of the most wonderful times of my life. I look back on it as the highlight of everything I've done. It was the time that I had the most joy, the most fun. I love the work in Sudan, but the work in Sudan, it's a joy, but I do not call it enjoyable. It's very hard labor. But in Russia, it was truly enjoyable to do ministry. And we'd go into these prisons and we would show, the, uh, show Jesus film, we'd get Bibles, we'd preach the gospel. We saw more than 70,000 young boys and girls give their lives to Christ. But I remember that I had a young girl that was on one of my teams and she was a very, very sweet Christian girl, really seemed to love the world and uh, love the Lord. And she went on about three of my teams. And after about the third team, she said to me one day, she said, Wes, do you mind if I sit down and talk to you? And I said, no, not at all. And I wasn't, didn't think anything about it because people always did this. They wanted to talk about missions or maybe becoming a missionary or giving. They wanted something, God usually would touch their life over there. And she said to me, she said, if God would ever want me to be more than a sister to you someday, she goes, I would really like that. Now guys, I wasn't the brightest guy, but I could pretty much figure out what she was saying to me there. And I was actually shocked by it. She was a very young, she was about nine, 10 years younger than me, very small, very petite little girl, very, very innocent life. 
Matter of fact, her testimony was that she was into chocolate chip cookies and swing sets, and at the age of six, she decided to give up that reckless life of sin and turn her life over to Christ, you know. Uh, she told me that she had backslid once in her life and smoked a cigarette, and I told her I was pretty sure we could move past that and go on with our relationship with the Lord. And uh, guys, I've always been kind of a big lug of a guy. I've, I've always been just, I'm just big, you know. I call this my hope chest someday. I hope it'll be my chest, you know. And uh, <laughs> go. But you know, uh, when she first said that to me, I was so excited about it. I was so, I couldn't believe this young, beautiful girl wanted to be my wife. And uh, as I began to walk down that road and I began to pray, there was an uneasiness in my spirit. Something began to speak, to disturb me. And I started to seek the face of God. And God said to me, you're not to marry this woman. She's not the one for you. When the Holy Spirit said that to me, I said, you know, Lord, I think that you're missing some of her finer qualities. And uh, uh, if there's a problem with that cigarette, we should just forget about it and go on with this relationship here. And the Lord said, Wes, you got to say goodbye to her. And I remember that, guys, I'm used to war. I've been bombed 12, 13 times in the Sudan. I've been under fire many times. I've come close to losing my life quite a few times there. I'm used to it. But I remember that when I had sat down, I said to her, I talked to her, I said, I said you're going to make someone a wonderful wife, but unfortunately, it is not going to be me. I said, I don't know why, but we are going in different directions, and I have to release you. I don't want you to think that I don't care for you, because I do care for you, but I know the voice of the God, and God has told me that we're not to be married. And this young girl broke down, and she began to sob. And guys, I'm used to bullets. I can handle that. Lions, crocodiles, snakes, no problem. But the tears, I had no defense for it. And the problem was, is I couldn't make it better. I couldn't say to her, well, let's pray about it. The Lord said, do not say that. You tell her it's over with. I left a girl that was in tears. In the last 20 years of working in the Sudan, we are now in 19 countries in the world. We are in seven of the 10 most dangerous Islamic nations in the world. We've opened up a division of our ministry. We call it ghost operation. It's the invisible hand in the closed world of radical Islam. We are sending over half a million dollars in the Middle East just to rescue Christians out from under ISIS and other terrorist organizations and to support pastors. 200,000 alone just to feed the Syrian church. We've been very involved there. We're in Afghanistan, Pakistan, Iraq, Syria, the West Bank. We're in the areas of Hezbollah, Al-Qaeda, Hamas, PLO, ISIS, and many of the other radical Islamic organizations. And the Lord has really blessed the ministry. We're working in Russia. We're currently building four Calvary chapels in Russia right this moment. You know, uh, we're involved in places like China and many other parts of the world, Mexico. Six months after I got to the Sudan, this young girl called me on the phone one day. And she goes, I need to say something to you, Wes. She goes, when I heard that you were called to Sudan, she goes, I had a real fear in my heart. She said, I knew the way that God made you, and I knew that he made you for something like this. And I have to be completely honest. She goes, I could have never handled being your wife in the South Sudan. And guys, I think about had I disobeyed the Lord and married that girl, would I ever have known what I missed? All the works that are going on around the world have been ended by one wrong decision. And that's why it's so important to realize that obedience is a safety net for the believer. In the chaplain's court, we live by a code of ethics. It's a code that holds together the very fabric of our society. And I want to read you guys this code. It's called the Knight's Code. It says, to fear God and protect his church, to serve the Lord in valor and faith, to protect the weak and the defenseless, to give refuge to widows and orphans, to refrain from the giving of offense, to live by honor and for the glory of God, to fight for the welfare of all, to obey those placed in authority, to guard the honor of your fellow knights, never to refuse the challenge when the innocent are in peril, to keep faith at all times to speak the truth, to respect the honor of women, and never to turn your back upon a foe. And it's a code that holds together the very fabric of our society. Guys, we're going to show you a DVD, and these are our chaplains in the war zone. Now, again, you're not going to these places for those of you who sign up. But the point of showing it to you is we want you to understand the men that you will be ministering to. You will be a cup of cold water. We'll probably have at least 370 of them coming from the field this coming June and July. And you'll be going there to help minister to them, to encourage them, and to strengthen them. They'll have been in a year and a half of extreme war, and you're going to go there and be a cup of cold water to them. And then we'll take a moment to close. Guys, let's go ahead and show that.
These are the chaplains of far-reaching ministries. They have come to the FRM compound in Sudan to be equipped for war. But they prepare not only for a physical battle, but also for a spiritual battle. A war over the souls of men and women caught in the grips of unthinkable atrocities. These are the men that will carry much more than bullets and rifles into battle as they bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the front lines of war. Exactly what happened in Nuba Mountain, there is a war between us Nubians and the government of Northern Sudan. Uh, exactly, if they want to attack, they are not looking for the place where the army stay. Uh, always they are attacking a place of civilians or areas of civilians. And then they, they will leave us there as the soldiers in the barrack and then they will come and attack the civilians with Antonov and uh, something like this. Uh, up to now? Uh, up to now they are still bombing the village of civilians. So the militia come and attack that uh, village. Actually, there were a lot of uh, these school children, a lot of uh, the women, so they were gathered there. So the militia attacked that village and uh, they burned that uh, village completely. So even they're killing these small children. So when they ask what, why they're killing these small children and these women, they say because if these people grow up tomorrow, they're the ones who are going to join the SPLA and they're the ones who are going to fight high, so they're going to kill them. They start to attack us and also come to our place where we, we stay and then burn some our houses and kill our children and take women's up to now. Uh, they took them and then some of them, they say that this is my wife because it's a uh, soldiers of his fellow wife. It's uh, right for me to take it. And then they rip some women's and then uh, the women who refused to be ripped by, by soldiers of government and then they beat them and kill them. Really, it has been painful for all the Ispele in Nuba Mountain. Even the commanders was been painful for these things because it was been. You cannot even accept this one because you can see women here pregnant die, his children in the arm shooted, and then if they, call, they got maybe child of Nubian, they cut him with a knife like this, slaughtering some people. It was been really tough, tough, tough uh, that time. We told them that uh, be encouraged. Uh, Jesus Christ love you because you have seen the terrible war and the terrible killing and a lot of things you have seen with your eyes. But now God have delivering you from that. You just say thank you to the Lord. Say thank you to Jesus. You have a right now to turn from your sin, to turn for what you are doing to the Lord. And uh, never mind about your children or your wife and uh, your property that have got burned. Because we know Job was being lose all his, his property and his children. But his love was still in the God and he was still trusting in the God. That is why we're encouraging them that you just have a patience. For everything on the wall here, you can get it if you have a place in Jesus Christ.
but if you don't have a face you can lose it here on the earth you can lose it on the heaven and the little children of you that have died here you just make sure you are going to meet them in heaven Folks, uh, in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul talks and he says in verse 3, he says, we put no stumbling block in anyone's path so that our ministry will not be discredited. Rather, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way, in great endurance and troubles, hardship and distress, in beatings, imprisonments and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights and hunger, in purity, understanding, patience and kindness in the Holy Spirit and in sincere love, in truthful speech and in the power of God, with weapons of righteousness in the right hand and in the left, through glory and dishonor, bad report and good report, genuine yet regarded as impostors, known yet regarded as unknown, dying yet we live on, beaten yet not killed, sorrowful yet always rejoicing, poor yet making many rich, having nothing and yet possessing everything. And when we read this portion of scripture, you realize that you know, we, we tend to see successful ministries by how large is the church, how wealthy is a church. But this is the way that God views things. God views things in a very, very different way. Matter of fact, Paul the Apostle, when he writes the second book of Corinthians in chapter 11, he talks about his suffering. And in there, at the timeline that he writes this, he's 11 years into his public ministry, and he's got another 11 years before he's gonna be martyred for his faith. And he tells us in the first 11 years of his ministry, he says, five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with a rod. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. 
shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from Gentiles, in danger from Jews, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I have labored and told and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and besides all these other things I face daily, my pressure and my concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I do not feel weak? Who is led into sin and I do not inwardly burn? Paul tells us that in 11 years of public ministry that he has been beaten nine times severely, shipwrecked three times, spent a night and a day in the ocean. He's been cold, he's been hungry, he's been naked. He's been chased by just about everyone. And yet Paul says of his life, I count my life worth nothing. If only I might finish the race. So guys, we need to re-examine how we view our walks with the Lord. Folks, I have never felt like I will live out my natural life. I know that the Lord has a certain time and a certain date of which it's gonna come to an end. But see, I talked with my mother many years ago and I said, Mom, there's gonna come a day that someone's gonna call you and they're gonna tell you, I'm not coming home. When that day comes, do not tell the world that it was a tragedy or it was a mistake. You tell them that I ran the race I finished the course, and now there's in store for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself will award. See, guys, we are called to live exceptional lives for the gospel. As men, we were made for battle. We were made to be in the thick of it. We were made to be protectors of women and children, and we have given up our God-given right of how we are supposed to live. We were never to fear the world or fear what the world might do to us. We are to fear the Lord. And when we live these exceptional lives, when we live lives of purity, when we do not entangle ourselves in the things of the world, then the world sees the light of Christ and they come to know who we are. I was in Uganda this last year with Love Covers. On Independence Day in Sudan, calls started coming in all across the southern Sudan to our staff there, to Michael, our senior chaplain. And they said, Michael, you will not believe it, but all the commanding generals of the Sudanese army are standing up today on Independence Day, and they said there's only one organization in all of Southern Sudan that is, do, is operating properly, and that's far-reaching ministries. And if the rest of you would follow them, we could change the nation. Now, guys, I don't agree with that. There's a lot of good organizations. But what they were saying is they don't boast about it. They don't try to get in the news. They don't try to get in newspapers. They just do the work, and they keep their mouths shut, whereas many other people do try to look for the recognition. We were never supposed to look for treasures in this life, guys. We're supposed to be looking for treasures in the life to come. I want to encourage you as a body of believers, you've been given this one precious life to live for Christ. You're supposed to be about the Father's business. You should literally look for a person every single week to invite to this church. Every week, invite someone. And guys, it's not that hard. You just go up and you say, there are many lonely people out there. There are many people that have no one. There are many people that, while they may seem okay on the outside, they're lost on the inside. And all you need to say to them is say, brother, I found hope. I found life in Jesus Christ. Why don't you just come to me at church on Sunday and I'll buy you lunch afterwards. You'll be amazed at how many people will come. Folks, I believe that the Lord wants to take this church much further to where it grows two and three times beyond what it is today. But it will only happen as you, the body of believers, get involved in sharing your faith. As you leave this morning, we now have the Children of War Project. And these are the children of the families that parents had to kill their own relatives <clears throat> living in northern Uganda. We called it Children of War. If you would like to sponsor one of these children, and you're going to help them to be able to go to school, which is the most important thing for these families is to be able to be a part of that, it's $50 a month. And guys, everything that you give us is going to go to that school. We don't use it to raise money for our ministry. It will be used to educate and help children to grow up with a strong, godly foundation. We don't compromise in the things that we do. We also have, for those of you who were not here the last time we're here, is our ghost operations. These are the pastors under radical Islam. It's $75 to sponsor one of these. We can give you no updates on them. We can tell you nothing that's well in the card. You will hear nothing unless they are killed. If they're found out, they will be executed. So we keep it extremely secretive of what we're doing in these parts of the world. That's why we call it ghost operations. And then we have our chaplains in the South Sudan Army. I have 500 men, almost all of them are in extreme combat conditions right now. I am sure before the refresher course comes next year, we will lose many more. The guys, it's $75 to sponsor one of these. If you sponsor all three, it's 200, and many people do, which we're thankful for. 
If you do decide to sponsor one, we brought one of these Knights codes out there to give to you so you can take home and use it for your family. And uh, we want you just to have that. Now, this is an automatic debit. It comes out on the third of each month. Do not pick them up and walk away with them. We won't know if they're sponsored. Just fill out the, the, this address, phone number, sign it at the bottom. It, you can use a voided check, debit card, or credit card. If you don't have your information, you fill that out, sign it, and the girls will call you for your information later. In closing this morning, we've been given opportunities in our life. And sometimes, guys, we miss those opportunities for lack of obedience. I could sit here today and tell you story after story of times that God told me to be obedient. And guys, one of the things that drives me most to stay obedient with the Lord is I've seen all that he's done in the last 20 years. And should the Lord give me another 10 years, I want to see what the next 10 will behold. See, we did not go to Sudan to be another Christian presence. We went there to win a nation and a continent to Jesus Christ. And we are willing to do it. The model for the chaplain's corps is no cost too great. There's no cost that we will not give to reach others for the sake of the gospel. And as Christians, we're supposed to have that burden for the lost. We should rise in the watches of the night. We should slip out of our bed. We should find times of praying. The Lord woke me up last night to pray because I felt a burden for the lost. And guys, the war is going to excel in Sudan for a long time. We used to be fighting one army. Now we're fighting five armies and 47 different rebel groups in the southern Sudan. It's a very bad situation. But through Jesus Christ, we are more than conquerors. And I believe that God has called us to make a difference in that nation. I believe he's called us to protect women and children. And you know, the people say, they say, when far-reaching ministries is here, we feel safe because we know that they will hold the line. They will not retreat. You know, we had a rebel patrol that was probing our village about a year and a half ago. So the chaplains would be out in the field in the class studying, and we'd get them up, run them nine miles in the morning. And so what we had to do is, after school every day, we'd let them sleep for about three hours, and then we would deploy them in the field every night until about three in the morning when we'd pull them back in. We'd pull them back in, they'd get a few hours sleep, get up and run again, and we had to do that for a month and a half to do that. There was great fear among all the women in our village, and I called all the ladies in the village together. I brought them all in. I said, ladies, if you hear something, you know there's something that may be out there, you call us and we will come. Don't call us for every twig that breaks or we'll be up all night long. But if you really think there's a real threat out there, you call us and we will come. And we'll deal with every single one of them. See, we're called to protect those that do not have the ability to protect themselves. And guys, especially you, you were made for battle. You were made to get in the thick of it. Grow up and accept that God-given right. Do not grow up to be an effeminate man, but grow up to be a warrior, a knight for God's kingdom. Pastor, would you come up and close? God bless you. As I mentioned at the beginning, when I met Wes a little over four years ago and then had the opportunity to go for two weeks, a little over three years ago now, to go and spend two weeks with the chaplains myself and get to know them and to hear their stories and to share with them and encourage them, it changed my life. Um, uh, I've always been, as a Christian, somebody who had a heart for missions, if you would, but I always said, you know what? Um, I, I'm, I'm one that says, you know, I have no problem sending a check and praying long distance and that type of thing. And, but when the Lord touched my heart with that, I would, you would have never convinced me 10 years ago that I would have gone to South Sudan. There's, there's no way you could have convinced me of that. Now I can't wait to go again uh, next year. Um, and I guess what I want to do is encourage you to pray about this. Um, we want to take a team out there next year to bless those kids to be a part of what's going on there, to encourage those chaplains. Um, and at the very least, again, guys, that just to remind you to continue to pray for what's going on over there and around the world. Like I mentioned, tonight, 6 o'clock is our encounter night where we'll get together here again in the sanctuary, praying for the persecuted church, praying for the different ministries. Um, but as you leave, if you would, please stop by the table. get some, Just talk with them about that. And if you're, we'll have some more information coming up very soon about the trip that we'll be taking next year. Uh, but be praying about being a part of that. So let's pray as we close. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Thank you for who you are and who we are in you. 
Lord, would you, would you do this work in each one of our hearts right now to help us understand this truth that church is not a place we go. The church is who we are. We are the body of Christ. And Lord, it's so easy for us to get comfortable where you have us right now because we are so blessed. We thank you for the freedoms that we have. We thank you for the blessing that it is that we can come here openly and freely. But Lord, let us never forget that there are so many around the world that are, that are suffering, that are fighting uh, for their very lives and protecting the faith and, and, and sharing the faith where they are. So Lord, would you just do a work in each of us? Speak to us individually and personally. We thank you again. We thank you for far-reaching ministries, Lord. Continue to bless that ministry and the reach that they have. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.